Hey everyone, welcome to the Sneaker History Podcast, where we dive into the people, stories, and iconic moments that have helped make sneakers a global phenomenon. If you've ever told someone that you like their kicks, then you're in the right place. Before we lace up this episode, here's a little teaser for you. Stick around to the end of each episode for the last shot question. It's a chance to test your sneaker knowledge and engage with our community. I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com slash newsletter for a weekly deep dive into the biggest topics in the sneaker business. All right, now that the business is taken care of, grab your favorite pair of kicks and let's get started with the episode. Jordan trying to shake off Starks. Oh, what a move! Against Gil, the crowd on its feet. Allen for the win! Welcome to the Sneaker History Podcast. What up, what up, what up? This is Robbie from Sneaker History. Sitting down here with our friend Clark Chen of a couple different ventures. Um, You're definitely familiar with some of his work if you've ever opened up a Slam magazine. Uh, Clark, man, how you doing today? What's up? Good. This is kind of impromptu, but uh, let's go with it. It's super impromptu. We were just meeting at Deadstock Coffee. Shout out to Ian. And I happened to bring the microphone, so let's just let's do some recording. It's going to be a fun little time. Teach you kids a little bit about business. You know, subtly tell you about work ethic. So I think at the end of the day, he's not going to tell you he has a hard work ethic, but you don't get to having 24 years of experience as a business owner, working with some of the biggest, 25, see, 25 years, working with all these different brands, having your name in various places if you're not a hard worker. So if anybody out there is looking to take their t-shirt game from a press in the back of their mom's house, to the mall, to the world, this is the episode for you. So Clark, man, tell us, what do you do? I am the owner and founder of Shirts and Skins. It's a basketball uniform apparel company. Um, I started in 1994. And uh, uh, we also have a lifestyle uh, brand called Almanac, which was started in 2014. Um, And we do a few other uh, business uh, divisions. Um, One where we're a um, a team dealer for Adidas because we had a really good relationship with Adidas uh, grassroots basketball. So, dealer with high school, middle school, like high school, colleges, uh, club programs uh, that uh, Adidas uh, has um, contracts with. So we service some of those uh, uh, contracts. Okay. So you were telling me earlier that you're in Vegas all the time. This kind of work brings you all around. You're working with schools across the country. We work, so Vegas, uh, we go, we've been down there since 2004 when uh, um, there's a tournament called uh, the Main Event, which is an AAU tournament for the live recruiting period for college coaches. Started by a guy named Hal Pasner, who was really one of the, uh, uh, I would say probably almost like the uh, godfather grassroots basketball in terms of uh, tournament organizers go. Um, so we started working with Hal, and actually his son is the head coach at Georgia Tech. 
And uh, so we started uh, going down to Vegas where we were actually selling merchandise. Uh, we helped him create logos for his tournaments because back then it was just basically a bunch of um, you know cheap looking t-shirts. And so I approached him about uh, you know having us uh, because we come from a design and product background where we could actually help him create a logo identity for all his tournaments and back it with merchandise and give him a percentage of sales. So that's where we started our deal. Um, he got his tournaments up to like the main event over a thousand teams at its peak. And then we've been in Vegas ever since. He's how has even sold his company two or three times. And we've worked with, uh, besides how, how with uh, the main event, uh, he also has started uh, Bigfoot Hoops. We worked with uh, uh, Chris Rivers at Adidas when he was there uh, doing all the Adidas grassroots tournaments, including the Uprising and Gauntlet uh, tournaments. And uh, most recently, uh, we're working with um, uh, some of the basketball old heads, uh, Grant Rice, who's the head coach at uh, Bishop Gorman uh, High School. Uh, him and a guy named uh, Gary Charles and Dino Chagonis. Um, that was the Fat 48. This year is actually called the uh, the Big Time. The Big Time was actually the original one of the original Vegas tournaments that was started by Sonny Vaccaro. So if you know Sonny Vaccaro yeah. uh, from uh, obviously Adidas, Nike, uh, he started Big Time. The, the, the big LeBron. Yes. Kobe yes. signing. Yep. T Mac. Yeah. Go watch that 30 for 30. If you haven't seen it yet, go watch it. So you started that blurb there with your your fortes in product design and distribution. Correct. So is that what you went to school for? Did that come out of nowhere? Like, how did you start doing that? Okay, so um, grew up in, in Portland. Actually, was originally born in Taiwan. Moved here into Portland when I was seven. Um, been in Portland ever since. Went to school uh, at Oregon State. This is back in eighty. So I graduated in '87 from uh, Beaverton High School. Beaver, and uh, so went from Beaverton Beavers to Oregon State Beavers. But uh, so I was actually a hotel and restaurant management major my first year. Uh, actually was accepted at UNLV. Uh, went there for a campus visit. And That's the we, number one school for uh, hotel management. Them and Cornell University were actually the top two. Obviously UNLV being in Vegas. Uh, went and did a campus visit with a buddy who had a full ride scholarship to play soccer at UNLV. I ended up not going because I knew after being down there, there's no way I can get anything done. Yeah. And uh, so that's why I went to Oregon State. Um, actually, Oregon State had a pretty good uh, program for hotel and restaurant management. So they call it University Never Leave Las Vegas. <laughs> if, if, you, if anybody that doesn't know that or isn't from Las Vegas, it's because you're easily putting in six to seven years of college in a four-year in a four-year program. So if you ever get done, <laughs> yeah, that's right. if you get to seven years. Right. So went to uh, Oregon State. Um, realized that I didn't want to stay in the hotel and restaurant management. Decided that I was going to go and transfer. So I transferred to uh, University of Arizona, and I. Some friends of uh, mine from high school, they uh, swam down there, but you know, we weren't really, you know, friends, friends yeah. uh, that I hung out with, but I knew what I wanted to go. What year was that? That was uh, 89. So I went to Oregon State my first year in one term, okay. and I transferred down to uh, U of A uh, the spring of 1989. And just, so, why U, U of A? Yeah. I'll say this, the basketball program. 
So prior to that, the year before that, what U- they're most known for? U of A with Sean Elliott, Steve Kerr, all those guys. They had just gone to the Final Four that prior year. And big basketball fan, I go, okay, I'm gonna go to a basketball school. Fell in love with the campus. I actually went and uh, visited ASU at the time too. But uh, U of A just you know, was just the right campus. Went down there, had a ton of fun, uh, and uh, basically that was kind of my UNLV because I didn't get anything done. <laughs> and uh, so I was down there for two years, and then eventually said I'm either going to stay down there for life, like you said, with UNLV, or I was going to eventually drop out. So I dro- uh, came back to Portland, transferred back to Portland, uh, yeah, Portland State University, and finished my degree. We're going to give them a little, give them a break. All right, so Arizona long-term wasn't working out for you, though? Correct. But uh, I actually had started a, uh, a clothing line uh, at Arizona. It was uh, back then in the 80s. Uh, beach volleyball was super popular. You had uh, brands like Side Out Sport, uh, Club Sportswear, and a bunch of other ones. There was actually a guy in my fraternity that uh, started a, uh, a beach volleyball line called... Um, what we call, I think it was called like Net Sportswear, uh-huh. and then I eventually started one called Buff uh, Sportswear, B-U-N-P. And um, so I did that for basically just to learn about the clothing industry. I had no experience whatsoever. I went to a local store, bought some fabric, took it to a seamstress, had it cut and sewn. I won a specific uh, volleyball short with uh, pleats. And uh, pleated volleyball pleated shorts. volleyball shorts, and uh, so I also made some. Uh, uh, did a T-shirt graphic with uh, actually my roommate who was a graphic design major, and to this day he still feels like I owe him some sort of royalty. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that one time I made you that graphic when I was drunk? Yeah, you owe me. <laughs> uh, and back then it wasn't. Uh, There's was no il- Illustrator freehand or whatever. It was all done by hand too. Mm-hmm. So it was all. Uh, definitely time-consuming work but uh so bump sportswear was really my first uh entry into the clothing industry um but then when i finished uh actually when i was at portland state university of oregon had started a new business plan competition uh basically they invited uh students from Oregon, Oregon State, Willamette, PSU, whoever the, school, the schools that they could actually come and join. There was, we put together a business plan. Uh, actually, one of my professors uh, told me about it. So I had a, another sportswear that I started after Bump because Bump wasn't really going anywhere and plus wasn't really my fat. You're not going to be selling pleated volleyball shorts to the masses, man? <laughs> I sold a few. I sold a few, but no, yeah. So, uh, and so I started uh, this other uh, line called uh, Ares uh, Sportswear, A-R-E-S. Like the God of War? The God of War. God of yeah, War. there you okay. go, right? So, Shout out PS2, God of War. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, um, so that was kind of uh, meant to be more of a general uh, sporting goods company um, because I had aspirations of being the next Nike like everyone else did. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I put together a business plan for that, entered into the business competition, there were actually two other students that were part of uh, the, our group. Uh, we went down to U of O. Uh, there were actually originally three teams competing, 
uh, us, the Portland State team, U of O, and I think Willamette dropped out. Uh, and I think it was really just uh, between us and uh, U of O. Um, we won first prize, and uh, anyway, I think it was the grand prize was like maybe three or four hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And I threw the money on just taking my teammates out for a nice dinner. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't really use it to, uh, for the uh, for the business. Um, but now that comp- competition now, uh, which is actually held at the I think the um, this hotel down here, uh, down the street. Maybe it's Embassy Suites. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like twenty-five thousand dollars grand prize. They have teams from all over the world, from Stanford, Columbia, University of Thailand. Yeah, so it's a big deal now. They need to prorate you. They owe you about twenty-four thousand six hundred dollars. <laughs> so that was cool. Just to read the uh, the first uh, the winner uh, for that uh, business plan. And that was with Aries. That was it with Aries. Okay. Yeah. So. When did Aries start becoming kind of your longest running company, shorts and um, shirts and skins, not shorts and skins. I'm thinking about shorts, the pleated shorts, man. Um, shirts and skins. Did that transition in yes. from Aries? Yeah. So I was working at uh, at that time at Portland State, the Vanguard, which is a student run newspaper. I was in uh, advertising sales. I was charged of the classified section. And uh, so I had this idea also. I always have some uh, another idea. Uh, so. It was to do a basketball apparel company, and I there was an old Nike poster um, that says "Shirts and Skins" with Jordan. It was really cool. It was kind of this foggy-looking poster. If you've ever seen it, it's uh, it's been around I think probably since the maybe the the late '80s, and that was my idea for the name "Shirts and Skins." It was off of that Nike poster, mm-hmm. and so. Again, Aries wasn't really uh, panning out, so I said, you know what, I'm going to go and chase after my passion, uh, which is basketball. You know, play basketball throughout my entire, you know, uh, young life. Never played, never had a chance to play at the high school level just because our Beaverton High School back then in the 80s it was a, a dominant program in the, uh, in the state. So... A little competitive. A little competitive. And uh, but just had had the much just had the same amount of passion, even if you play basketball or not play basketball. And um, so I started Shirts and Skins in two, actually in 1994. Uh, I was still living at home uh, in Tiger in my parents' house, and uh, so my first catalog had my uh, parents' home address there. And um, so that was 1994, and Kaplan Sports World, which is on, I think, uh, Southwest, uh, I want to say 5th or 4th down the street here, uh-huh. was the first retailer that picked up the uh, shirts and skins. And back then, it was just a bunch of t-shirt graphics um, that I sold, and um, I still have some samples of those t-shirts uh, back in the warehouse right now. Um, but at that time, there were a bunch of other basketball apparel companies that started around that same time. And one, uh, get paid out of Chicago, Hoopaholics from uh, Seattle, uh, Game Over from New York. Uh, Game Over. There was a bunch of other ones. And uh, so in 1995, I took shirts and skins to uh, a trade show in Atlanta called the Super Show and um, had a 10 by 10 booth. And a couple of my buddies from high school came along uh, and staffed the booth with me. Uh, but the big talk at, I think, that show uh, was that And One got picked up by Foot Locker. 
everyone were, it was great just because um, you know there's something legitimate about what everyone else was doing to try to do and to create this uh, a basketball lifestyle. Uh, but you got to kind of think about is N1 wasn't really the first one. Uh, you had to go back even a few years in 1989. Uh, there was another company called uh, Above the Rim that was started by um, a former uh, BYU basketball All-American named uh, Bob Kaepner. Uh, so when he started that, uh, he eventually sold it to Reebok. And so you know, Reebok had that also the uh, Above the Rim uh, uh, shoe line. As yes. Well, right? Yes, they yeah, did. I think Dee Brown was maybe one of the main uh, spokesmen. We'll be doing some research on that, and we'll post the link of some pictures when we find it. Um, no, that sounds about right, though. So, so above the rim started really the first basketball uh, apparel uh, brand in the modern era. Obviously, Converse was really the first basketball company, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so when above the rim basically just you know. Uh, wasn't relevant anymore of and one came and actually saw uh and one at the super show even prior the year prior in 1994 um when they just had a small 10 by 10 booth there was just like two or three guys uh i think it was uh seth Berger, jay gilbert uh tom austin the original founders i talked to them they were just young guys like me uh, in their 20s and uh, so there's there was something about and one that I thought was cool, and that even though it was some, something that I probably wouldn't wear myself, but they had something, and uh, so I wasn't surprised that Foot Locker picked them up, and uh, so every show after that, from Super Show to the SG, uh, SGMA right. show in Chicago, the and one booth got bigger and bigger and bigger, so. Um, so it was really uh, tough because you know, back then it was you want the Holy Grail was trying to sell to Foot Locker, mm-hmm. and they got into Foot Locker, and uh, so you know when you have Foot Locker, it's only really room for you know, one or two brands, especially in your category. So everyone else that had their own basketball uh, clothing line, you know, again from Get Paid, uh, Get Paid actually had a, a pretty good uh, run there too. This guy named Paul Wilkinson that started it. Um, uh, eventually, I actually worked with them at Adidas years later, and uh, but uh, so N1 became the success story that everyone wanted, uh, including me. But uh, you know they did a great job. They had a great run for you know how many years until they were sold uh, off a uh, hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I kept shirts and skins uh, running, uh, selling to the some of the retailers in Portland. Besides Kaplan Sports World, sold it to um, Pro Image. You remember Pro Image back in the day? Not me personally, but I'm sure some listener does. So Pro Image, uh, there was basically it's the just sports uh, in uh, Portland, and uh, there was a franchise, but it's like a, a fan shop. Mm-hmm. And uh, so got into uh, Pro Image, got into uh, the New York market because we had a collection back then called the. Um, like the New York uh, T-shirts, like the Brooklyn basketball, uh, Bronx, Queens, uh, Manhattan. So I kind of like what I told you earlier is I had a couple K-Swiss reps that saw us at the Super Show, uh, wanted to carry the line. They did a really good job getting into some of the mom and pop stores in um, in the in New York City. Eventually got into Dr. J's and Models, and but I was still losing money because you constantly had to promote samples, send out samples to buyers, to the sales reps. And just remember, I'm still just 
a guy that you're still living in your parents' house. So my parents' house, right? <laughs> and um, and uh, so I was in debt by about at that time probably about thirty thousand dollars, racking up credit card bills and everything. And I told myself I did a little soul searching and said I either gotta just quit doing this because I just can't afford it, uh, or I gotta go and uh, get a real job. Uh, but actually, I had a job uh, at the same time. And with, so in 1993, uh, even before I started Shirts and Skins, I had worked for uh, a local uh, Portland apparel brand uh, called Dehen, D-E-H-E-N. Uh, they've been around Portland since the 1920s, making uh, Letterman jackets, cheerleading uniforms, rugby shirts, uh, selling to like the college bookstore market. Not your normal hype. <laughs> so, but I'll take that. We'll circle back and talk about that because they're very relevant in the streetwear. Are they? Uh, now. Yeah. So I'll show you their website later. Um, but uh, so, and there's also a story with Dean and Mitchell and us connection. Uh, so a lot of people don't know about the uh, the manufacturing side of people making the jerseys and jackets for Mitchell and us, and that's what DNs did because they had another uh, contract manufacturing side of their business that did those type of work. Now I see. I, first I heard Letterman's jacket, and I'm like, nobody's gonna be who's buying Letterman's jackets, but it's also the 19, early 1900s, 1920s, so that's different. But then. Now you see a, a varsity jacket from Mitchell and Ness paired with a pair of Air Force Ones, and it's all the rage. Yeah. That's what's up. So then, Shirts and Skins went through quite a bit of changes. I see you're now wearing your Chosen One NYC t-shirt. You're, you're in tournaments in New York. You're in tournaments in Vegas. You're in tournaments in... The Long Beach one? You were there this summer? That was with the ball slide, the All-American game. Okay, but but you guys were supplying the... We have a really uh, kind of unique relationship with, with, with ball slide. Uh, you know, we, we actually, we were at a tournament in Vegas together. We were in, at the Fab 48 in Las Vegas at Gorman, mm -hmm. and uh, we were the official tournament merchandiser, and we've been there for a long time. And I just remember one year, I saw a bunch of guys just wearing false life t-shirts around it's like what's what's this and then they had a small little table set up to sell some of their merch i think this is around 2012 and i was like okay who are these guys wasn't paying that much attention because you know we had the main uh, uh booth in the, yeah. at the gorman uh lobby there and then uh next year they had two tables and i see more kids uh players hang uh, hanging out their table and start buying their merch from their uh, phone cases to the bracelets to the t-shirts and all that. I go, okay, what's going on? But still wasn't paying attention. Year three, they were now like five or six tables next to us and actually kind of invading our space. Yeah. And I go, okay, fine. I go, okay, who are you guys? You know, so I had no idea what they were doing. Uh, so, you know, later on I learned that, well, they're one of their first kind of the modern day YouTube mixtape. Obviously, N1 was the first mixtape. Uh, but they, uh, they, they, the uh, new school version, the new school version. So got to know them, uh, Matt Rodriguez, who's the, uh, the owner and founder, him and I are good friends. And, uh, so I became a fan of what they did, uh, more just stumbled onto what they were doing. And because, you know, first and foremost, we're all basketball fans. And, um, and so that's kind of the, the 
for the sport or the game that kind of brings us all together. And uh, so our relationship now is that we've designed, helped them design some of their merch. Uh, like for example, we designed their uh, high school All-American game uniforms. We provided some t-shirt graphics. We even sell merchandise at their uh, All-American game. And uh, in this past summer, like we were talking about earlier at the Long Beach Convention Center, uh, we did this event called HoopCon, which was kind of like a convention where we brought in different uh, you know, sneaker resellers and streetwear um, and you know, held that in conjunction with the All-American Game at the Long Beach Convention Center. Man, so, I mean, anybody who's listening to this, I'm willing to bet money you know what Ball's life, Ball life is. I mean, I think of the Zion mixtapes, like probably one of the craziest mixtapes ever just him in high school was insane uh who are some other i can't off the top of my head i'm totally blanking i mean sharif o'neal uh pretty much if you've been if you've been if you've been elite since 2012 you have probably a lot of views on ball's life well ball's life started in 2005 and they their claim to fame is really following derrick rose ah uh, so and Matt, at that time when he was started Ball Slide, you know, he still had a day job, and uh, so he was actually filming. And you gotta think, I think maybe at that time he might have been in, you know, late teens, early twenties. So no family, nothing, no commitment, driving after work to go and film. That was his passion. So Matt also has a really cool story about how he started Ball Slide too. Uh, so. That's kind of where I think uh, there's an appreciation for what both of us do is because, you know, it's the, the love, the grind, and uh, we also start at a very young age, too. All right. Well, speaking of young ages and doing stuff for a long time, you've had a fantastic partnership with pretty much the sneaker slash basketball Bible that is Slam for... Yeah. How long have you been working with Slam? So, Slam, I... Personally, I had their very first issue with Larry Johnson on the cover. Uh, so I actually bought that, I think, at a newsstand in Portland somewhere. And, uh, but we were actually the third, uh, we actually advertised in Slam in their third issue. And I can't actually remember off, off the top of my head who was on the cover. I'll remind you in about a week when I have my issue in. All right. <laughs> and uh, so we did a half page ad in there showing our New York t-shirts. And back then, there was no internet, nothing. So I had a small little office. I, by this time, I was already out of my parents' uh, bedroom uh, nice. house. I was actually leasing an office space uh, from Dean. And uh, so that when that issue came out, that third issue, within like two days, I probably got over several hundred phone calls, mail order uh, phone calls. So I would actually have this piece of paper, write down the person's uh, name, address, what t-shirt and credit card. And that's how you did mail order back then, you know? So you had, so you went from losing money all the time on these samples you're trying to give out, trying to get the name out there. And then you get in that slam issue three and now people are coming to you. Well, that was at the same time. So that was the time I was uh, losing money at the same time I was selling. So we were selling, but there was also, you know, the slam magazine back then I think it was like $1,000 for a half-page black and white ad. And $1,000 is a lot, you know, yeah. to, you know uh, to me. And uh, so, and besides samples and travel costs and paying sales rep commissions, everything there, yeah, it, it all adds up. 
there's all these parts to if you're thinking about starting a business if this story sounds good and you're like man i'm gonna go start shirts and skins my version of shirts and skins whatever you might call it i'm trying to think of a funny name and it, it didn't hit so my bad um you got to think about all of the other things costs people you have to work with to get a business running so you're getting all these mail order slams so it's, it's hitting for you though it's 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 doing what it needed to do the ads making you it's bringing customers in that first ad uh basically made a little bit of money more so broke even on it and um and then uh did another ad uh the second ad i totally kind of changed it up which i shouldn't have and uh so that one i lost uh, money on that and uh and did another ad after that eventually uh kind of i think that was maybe uh, around like 96 97 and I was again in debt and I was still working at DNs uh, at that time so my day job was actually making money uh, my my income source of income was at DNs mm-hmm. uh, because uh, eventually I actually handled their college bookstore market so back in the 90s and even 80s rugby shirts were still pretty popular and uh, so I was going to all these college bookstore shows and visiting colleges uh, to sell the DN shirts and products into uh, college bookstores and um, while I was doing uh, shirts and skins. So had so I guess maybe in 1998, did a again, 97, 98, sort of saying, okay, this is not really going anywhere and I'm in debt. And, uh, I made a decision that I, I got to start looking for a job even outside of DN. And because DN was a family-owned uh, company that there was a growth ceiling. Um, and I saw an ad in, uh, for a basketball product line manager at Fila, Fila Basketball. Fila, you know, obviously, it's an Italian company. Uh, they're based out of Biella, Italy. But their U.S. headquarters was in Sparks, Maryland, uh, outside of uh, uh, Baltimore. Jason Petrie used to work there. I don't know. I can't. I don't know who he is, but pretty so. sure uh, he designed the, the the Kobe, not the Kobe line, uh, the LeBron line down okay. the road. Okay. So, so Fila, uh, as you know, if you remember the Fila's history, you know they were Jerry one of the Stackhouse. Hot, well, they were one of the hottest, you know, streetwear, whatever you want to call it, urban brands uh, in the '90s. Uh, so they had those puffy jackets uh, too. So. Uh, so they had signed Grant Hill out of Duke, paid him like $60 million, almost bankrupt the company, and because Grant Hill was supposed to be the next Michael Jordan. Yeah. Uh, until, you know, the leg injury, yeah. leg injury and everything there too. So I was hired to be basically the product manager for their Grant Hill, their basketball line. And uh, some of my friends were saying like, you know, Vila, really? A tennis company, <laughs> right? So I go, you know what? How cool would that be to be part of a company that can transform from being a tennis company to the potentially the next Nike or Jordan, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at Nike, Nike was a sort of also a running company. Were they a running company or a basketball company or what? Now they're everything, but right. So that was the idea, and that was exciting. Uh, Afila had a design and marketing office in Portland here, uh, so. It wasn't. I wasn't uh, moving to Baltimore or Italy. Whew. So four months into it, great. I got a, man, a chance to meet uh, Grant Hill in Detroit. I had a chance to fly to uh, Biella to see the field headquarters there. But 
Fila's business was tanking really bad. The new president that came in, a guy named John Epstein, who was the uh, Adidas. I'm gonna have to re-record that part, hold on. All right. Right? So, Fila's business was really tanking uh, back um, towards the, uh, the late 90s. And so I, I was only at Fila for four months until they said, we're closing the office. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> I just left shirts and skins. I left uh, DN and I'm here. So, and this is probably the first time I go, all right, I'm willing to move out of Portland for a job. So I reached out to a, a guy that I knew from the basketball world, a guy named Ryan Drew who had started this, uh, his own uh, clothing line called Hoopaholics up in Seattle. He, Ryan uh, was the VP at uh, N1. And I got to know some of the, uh, the original founders. So I reached out to Ryan said, hey, Ryan, you have a job? Because I don't, but I know someone at Adidas that might uh, need someone. So he put me in touch uh, with this, uh, the product line manager for uh, special makeup uh, for T-shirts and uh, went in there for an interview, got the job, and uh, started basically shortly after that. What were you doing? So you were design, what were you, product? What at were you, No, at, at the Adidas role. At Adidas, there was a product line manager also that wasn't for basketball. It was for special makeup t-shirts. So like special makeup stuff for Adidas was, for example, you had Foot Locker, Champs, um, Field action, finish line. So most of those uh, retailers didn't buy it out of the catalog. You made special products for them, or special makeup products, or exclusive okay, products. Okay, yeah. So you had a whole team of designers, product line managers uh, that actually went and visited the accounts and built product, exclusive products for them. Because you can't you can't sell the exact same T-shirt in a mall to four stores. Exactly. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. So. And they had the buying power to really move volume, so oh, yeah. that's why you built the team there. It's Adidas, duh. Um, so, I mean, that must have come to an end if we're now sitting in front of your store laundry here in downtown Portland. So, so Adidas was a great experience because um, I was actually only there for a year and three months uh, from, um, when, what was that, uh, October, I think, of 99 uh, to early 2000. Um, doing that, and this was when they were in Beaverton uh, off of Nimbus, mm -hmm. and uh, they were in the, the current uh, Adidas Village right now in North Portland. So um, so I did that for a little over a uh, year, and Adidas went through a restructuring uh, at that point, uh, because back then, like when you began to look back to the history of Adidas in, in, um, in um, Portland, it was started in 1992 and 93. Um, and it was Adidas America because the uh, Rob Strausser, who started Adidas America with Peter Moore, the designer, uh, basically said to Germany, we wanted to have our own sourcing, design team, everyone, so we can control our, our marketing, our uh, production, and everything. That's why it was called Adidas America, mm -hmm. as opposed to Adidas AG. So. Eventually, Adidas went through a restructuring. They tried to infuse a little bit international with Adidas America. Uh, new teams were formed. As a result, uh, I was laid off uh, after that, and uh, which I I thought was, you know, I was disappointed. But at the same time, it was uh, I was kind of kind of relieved because I go it's a corporate job, which just wasn't for me, and uh, I never kind of felt like I fit in there. I mean 
only because I think I started out as a, you know, a small business owner and, um, you know, probably... Trying to go from the wolf to the sheep. Exactly, you know. <laughs> so, anyways, I was glad that... And so, what did I do after that? Uh, I actually spent like a few months at actually a graphic design firm uh, that I actually had hired when I was at Adidas to do some uh, work for us. Um, that was kind of a short stint. And um, that was probably the first time I thought about just, you know, getting out of the industry altogether. And, um... Skateboarder, hold on. So, you almost called it quits. I almost called it quits. Hold on, I'm gonna plug a, a meter here. So you almost called it quits. Correct. So, so after the graphic design firm, um, my old boss at Dean uh, contacts me and said, hey Clark, our sales rep just left. Do you want to come back and just work for us until we hire a new person? I said, sure, let me do that. And um, so that was what, early 2000, maybe around like late 2000, maybe early 2001. And um, so I said, okay, there are a few accounts I actually want to work with because Adians has some private label customers that they were doing contract manufacturing for. Uh, one of them was called Mitchell Ness. The other one was called Ebbetsfields Planos. I'm not sure if you heard Ebbetsfields Planos. I have, I, I have not, well, obviously I know what Mitchell Ness is, but I've not heard of that other brand. So uh, Ebbets is a, a Seattle um, company based out of, actually Seattle company that does like a vintage uh, baseball. Uh, they do other sports too, but really their name for, for baseball. Um, so Deans at that time was making wool leather baseball jackets. Um, and so I reached out to Mitchell Nuss and at that time, Dean wasn't really making that much for a Mitchell Nuss. So I reached out to Mitchell Nuss and and talked to Peter, who's the, the owner, and I said, hey, Peter, I'm with uh, DN, and he goes, yeah, I know who you are, and he said, are you interested in uh, having us make some uh, uh, jackets for you guys? He goes, yeah, actually, we're thinking about uh, making a switch because we're not happy with our current uh, factory, so uh, I'll give you a couple of test orders. And Mitchell and Nesson at this area was still a small company. I think they were maybe a one or $2 million uh, business at that point. And um, so we made some jackets, and I won't kind of tell you all the you know ins and outs of it. But basically, is that in the two to three year period, we did basically hardly any sales with Mitchell Ness. Went to a 2.25 million dollars in production orders. Mitchell Ness grew from what a one to two million dollar business to a 35 million dollar business because we were. If you actually think about uh, what Mitchell and Ness went through with, you know, the, the basically the hip hop market adopting their look with Outkast, mm -hmm. Jay Z wearing the uh, the jerseys back then, so that was the first time I always felt like I was on this uh, this trend, and I never felt that experience before because you could do no wrong, and uh, I would actually fly out to Philadelphia and uh, meet with uh, you know Mitchell and Ness and develop products up with them, working with their team. You know, basically burning a lot of midnight oil, just getting stuff done. Uh, even did some cool research projects with them. So the commissions I earned from Mitchell and us, that's how I restarted Shirts and Skins. Okay. So I kind of, you know, attribute the Mitchell and us uh, uh, sales growth to the re rebirth of Shirts and Skins the second time around. Yeah. I mean, man, that's, 
that's a beautiful thing when one company inadvertently kind of is bringing, bringing life back to another one. So shirt and skins is, is the basketball side because we've kind of gone over this a bit. Basketball kind of what this all circles back to. It's the love of the sport. So you also have a second brand which is carried here at Laundry which is... Well, let me, let me go back and tell you the shirts and skins part, okay? No, yeah, do it. So, shirts and skins, because what do I do? You know, I went the, the first time around was t-shirts and shorts trying to be the next uh, uh, lifestyle for basketball. Yeah. So, um, with shirts and skins, uh, the second time around, um, you, I know you weren't here in Portland then, but back then there was a measure called Measure 5 that basically essentially cut out a lot of the middle school uh, funding for sports. Okay. So let's say when I went to school in junior high, the school district paid for all the sports equipment, shoes and uniforms and everything. Now that went all away. So the idea that I had was, okay, you know, parents still want their kids to play sports. Now they had to pay for everything. Uh, especially at that youth level. I mean, high school sports is still funded by you know, the school district, but basically, essentially, middle school, junior high back then was all now parent-funded. So Big sale stuff. Yeah. So, uh, so I had an idea of doing a, um, um, a reversible game uniform, because back then, in the, um, uh, uh, back in the day, was, everything was all these cheap micro-mesh reversible jerseys. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't anyone doing. I think of the Adidas ABCD camp yeah. jerseys, the really shitty. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, so all that's that was it. And uh, so I had the idea with um, had the idea with doing a reversible game uniform, and I actually had a factory in Taiwan that uh, I had uh, uh, sought out when I was in uh, visiting my dad in Taiwan one year. This is the same factory that made those N1 Pro Mesh game shorts back in the oh. '90s. Nick and Brandon know about those shorts. We talked about them thoroughly in the last interview episode. But to have that connection, you you, you were seeing their success and one success back in 90, you know, 94, 95 when you're in Atlanta. And then now you later on get to work with the same factory that made those quality products. Yeah, and one at that time had already pulled out the, the factory in Taiwan. I think they were making it either in China or Thailand or somewhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I actually found the factory when I was traveling through Taiwan and went, walked through the World Trade Center because a lot of times that you go to the World Trade Center, you can see different factories advertising the products. And I dropped off a, a business card. Actually, you know what? This original, the original business card was when I was at Adidas and I dropped off a Adidas business card. And that's when I actually started the relationship with the factory, just communicating. Uh, obviously, the factory probably thought I was working for Adidas and wanted to you know, get some production business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I told them, hey, you know what? I'm in product marketing, I'm not in product sourcing. Just me. Just me. <laughs> but uh, can I maybe just keep your information around? Uh, yeah, so he gave me uh, some of the information that I needed when I was ready to restart Shirts and Skins. But back then, the minimum orders to go overseas was 1,200 units per style and colorway. You know, so I asked him, you know, I had some ideas for some designs for uniforms. Can you do less than 1,200? So he said, yeah, I can uh, make a, a, a style for you for like two or 300 units just to help out. Because I think the factory owner at that point was thinking, well, maybe shirts and skins is going to be the next hand one. Yeah. So he's willing to compromise and lower his minimums. And um, so... We started making some uh, reversible uniforms. I started selling uh, to some of the uh, 
uh, schools around uh, the Portland area. And there was nothing like that. So in a way that I felt like even though we didn't, uh, you know, obviously introduce and invent the reversible jerseys, we kind of reinvented it to make it better. Kind of like that BASF, you know, commercial. Yes. Right? So uh, that was really kind of how Shirts and Skins found its uh, niche. It was in a teen uniform market. We were selling to basketball camps, youth programs, you know, and also the AAU market was really just kind of starting to, you know, take off. Yeah, so we were right in the middle of uh, what was happening in, uh, in at least the, the basketball, the youth uh, grassroots side. So that's where Shirts and Skins has been all these years. We don't really obviously compete at the college or uh, the NBA uh, side or even the high school because the high school market is dominated by shoe brands like Nike, Adidas, and Under Armour. So there's a lot more people playing at that youth and club program. That's where our market is right now today. That's where their bread and butter is. Yeah. But then you have the lifestyle side, which is known as Almanac, which if you look up that Slam Kicks, Giannis cover magazine that just dropped recently. I believe you have an ad in there. Yeah. So, yeah, so uh, going back to the relationship with uh, Slam. So our deal with Slam is that uh, we have like a, a barter trade. So Slam will have us print Slam t-shirts and we'll get like a little shirts and skins. Those Jason Williams shirts, the Alan we did the, shirts. Yeah, we did those original like Slam cover tees. And uh -huh. In fact, I actually talked to them years and years ago about wanting to do that, but there was licensing issues with the NBA. Uh, so when finally they did a uh, collaboration with uh, Mitchell and us, which is kind of all full circles now, now they can actually, because Mitchell and us has an NBA license, mm -hmm. so they can actually now uh, use the slam covers. But back then, it, they didn't have those type of relationships. So uh, our relationship now uh, with slam is that it's a barter trade. So if we do, like say, promo shirts for them, marketing shirts, they'll give us a full page ad. So that's the reason why you see some of those uh, full page ads in Slam that we don't have to pay. You know, those some of those are ads for, you know, five, $6,000 for a full page ad. And I would never pay that. No. So. But shit, for, they, that's the definition of a symbiotic relationship right there. It's like, you help me, I help you. If you have that issue, Go look up Almanac. Is it almanacbrand.com or almanac.com? Thealmanacbrand.com. Thealmanacbrand.com. Go cop a t-shirt. They got some fire. Um, one of their more recent ones that I know everybody here knows is based off the Damian Lillard Dame Time t-shirt, right? Yes, and we try not to advertise that because that's kind of a bootleg image. We're not advertising that. I'm just saying it's on Google. <laughs> But there's some dope stuff coming out. Yeah, no, so again, we try to, for Almanac, we try to not uh, connect shirts and skins to Almanac just because we don't want to. So, um, but you wanted a little about the Almanac? Yeah. The history? Okay, so Almanac was started, the idea came from a guy named, a Portland guy named, uh, uh, Andrew Galligan, uh, Air Andy. Uh, so Air Andy was, uh, he had about 37,000 followers, and this is in probably 2013, 2014, still kind of like an early part of uh, Instagram. Yeah. And uh, so he was a big uh, sneakerhead. He had his 
followers that are, because he had access to some of the you know the rare sneakers because of I won't go into details yeah. as far as where he got them from but anyways uh, uh, but he eventually started Almanac in 2014 because I think he was just getting tired of the uh, the sneaker game and wanted to start a clothing line and um, so he got this image of uh, Jordan wearing that number 12 jersey against the Orlando Magic when he got his jersey stolen mm -hmm. and got that from the internet, put it on the t-shirt and just dropped in that tagline says rare. Uh, he told me that he actually put it on Instagram. You know, I had no idea that you could actually even do that back then. And posted on Instagram, did pre-orders, I think on Big Cartel or something like that. And uh, or like he sold pre-sold 500 T-shirts. I think twenty dollars a pop or something. Yeah. He came to me and said, "Okay, Clark, because at that time Andrew actually worked uh, for me in our office or actually our warehouse at you know, Shirts and Skins." And so, so he came approached me about, "I got this idea now, but I need help with financing and production. Can you help me?" In the past, you know, I had, had random people. So, like in the past, you know, just uh, random people because uh, I've been in the clothing industry for a while, and uh, people ask me, "Hey, uh, I have an idea for a T-shirt company or brand or whatever." Yeah. And my advice to them is always, um, "Don't do it." Well, <laughs> you know, I will never tell them don't do it, but I'll say, if you want to try to make money doing a clothing line, go to Vegas, put it on red or black on roulette because you have a better chance. Yeah. Because, or the other one is. If you really want to know about the business, okay, then do it. In terms of, you know, what it takes to actually design, develop, you know, source, sell, distribute, and all that stuff, that's an invaluable experience that you're not going to get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. you know, so those are real life experiences. Go fall on your face once and come back. Right. So, but Andrew uh, had something with Almanac. Uh, plus, I had an appreciation for all things uh, you know, sportswear and vintage, and Almanac was based off of that. Uh, my passion for, you know, again, uh, Mitchell Ness products and uh, Epic's Field, even like, you know, Dian. So I said, okay, you know what? I'll go ahead and support uh, this. And uh, well, in fact, we're going to leverage our relationship at Shirts and Skins and sell Almanac at some of these AAU tournaments that we were at. So we did that, um, you know, starting in like around May of 2014. So locally here, we sold it at uh, a couple of AAU tournaments, including the Rose City Showcase, which at its peak was probably one of the top AAU tournaments in the country. Dwight Howard came through, OJ uh, Mayo, Mayo uh, Kevin Love, and uh, all those guys, because it was sponsored by Adidas back then. And uh, so Almanac uh, really kind of got uh, uh, into really the marketplace, besides his, uh, Andrew's uh, Instagram, at the AAU market. And uh, so we opened up a Shopify store, started selling, and uh, eventually we put in a full page ad in Slam Magazine. We had a Kobe collection, you know, that little red box Kobe. And uh, we got a cease and desist from uh, the NBA. We got a cease and desist from uh, Kobe Bryant's agent. So all that stuff is down. For just putting Kobe. Just putting Kobe. Could be Kobe beef, you know, but there's yeah, no. Right. 
reference to Kobe Bryant. Could be my neighbor's dog, Kobe. Right. We don't know. So, anyways, I didn't want to fight the uh, the lawyer, so I said, right, we'll go ahead and take it down." Yeah. And uh, the almanac uh, continued, and eventually, you know, Andrew uh, left uh, to pursue a career in. Uh, uh, he worked for Columbia Distributing, uh, doing uh, wine sales and beer sales. Um, so he still helps out um, to this day, uh, from time to time at events uh, when we go to, like senior con, where mm-hmm. we take the uh, the almanac rank too. And um, so, so that's kind of where it left left us to laundry the store we're sitting in front of. So yeah, we've been sitting in front of a store the whole time. So if you hear some cars drive by, it's just some authentic ambiance. We want to put you on the porch with us. So if you're in Chinatown, there's a couple places you have to come through. You got to go to Deadstock. You got to go to Index. Got to go to yeah. Got to go to Produce Organics, and you have to come to Laundry because you guys have everything from your Almanac brand to Mitchell and Ness to other local brands to straight up vintage jerseys. Of your favorite players, you would not find anywhere else. You guys got like, everything here. Yeah. So the relationship with Chris, the owner of Laundry, is that uh, I met him when he had his store on the east side of Portland, and bought um, some. Uh, I was a, a shopper, consumer over there too. And then, uh, but I've been wanting to have a store in Chinatown three years prior. It's just hard to find a space. Mm-hmm. So when this space became available, I jumped on it right away. But I don't want to run a retail store. I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with retail. I love it when it's busy. Hate it when it's not. And it's <laughs> yeah, not to be open, right? Can we go home. No, yeah, you can't. Right, right. Stand here. Maybe open. So, <laughs> anyway, so uh, so I approached Chris and said, "Hey, how about if I sign the lease? I'll sublease it back to you. You occupy whatever. It's a fifteen hundred square foot space. You occupy two thirds because." Uh, prior to this, he was, I think, in a small space about 500 square feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I say, okay, I'll take one third and you take two thirds. We'll call the store Laundry because Laundry actually had a really good name in Portland. Um, and so Chris is running that. So it's really the Laundry store uh, that we're co-sharing that has a, uh, a section of uh, Almanac and also Mitchell Ness that I brought in. So it's been a really good uh, venture. We, you know, we moved in here in, I want to say, Actually, we moved in here in May. It's been less than a year. Yeah, definitely less than a year. So uh, it's done really well. And we're in the community that I've been coming to in Chinatown for all these years. Uh, so meeting just... If you're like, trying to be in these streets, these are the streets you want to be in. If you want to have a nice shopping experience, get a nice drink, shoe watch, people watch. We saw some people open up the, the sewer grate and go into the sewer. Did they go in? <laughs> I mean, they're I not there anymore. <laughs> so there were two people and they're no longer there. So they're either gone or they're underneath our feet right now. And that's kind of scary to think about, but we digress. So at the end of the day, it's it takes a lot to be a businessman, right? Anybody who's listening to this, you kind of said you either want to go bet it in Vegas or Go try and fail. Like it's not easy. It's not easy. But would you would you give it up for anything else? Would you have changed the journey? No. This is uh, it's it's uh, yeah. No, I would never change it. Uh, have I? Could I have made a career uh, in like working for Nike or Adidas? Maybe. Who knows? But it wasn't me. Uh, I'm small and business minded, and. Uh, uh, 
I like actually hanging out. Like Ian from Deadstock is a good friend. Mikey from the Index are good friends. So it's a community, and that's that's what you know. It's it's I don't even feel like it's work just because I'm hanging out with people that I really actually like hanging out with. In fact, Ian and I are going to Tokyo and Manila and Taiwan next month. Oh damn! So and Manila, yeah. Thriller Manila, yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the oldest proverbs there is. It's like if you're if you love what you're doing, you never do a day of work right. or some shit like that. Like, it's it's the living proof right here. It's not going to be easy, but looking back here, I mean, I know it's laundry, but you, know, you lease the joint, so like, yeah, no, I'm, uh, it's doing well. Looks great. It's a seven year lease, so I'm on the hook for it for another six and a half years. I mean, I, I just can't stress enough. If you're in the area and you like sneaker history, shoot me a DM. I'll come meet you down here. This, this walk around and support local business, man. Like, you can do so much. We'll have Chris Dixon on the podcast here soon. He's a footwear designer. He could have probably gone and worked for Nike and designed the next five random air trainers that could have been. But now he's out here doing Dixon designs, and it's some serious stuff. You got Almanac, shirts and skins, doing serious things. So if you have any questions, Clark, where can they find you, man? If somebody wanted to reach out to you. And pitch you a bad idea. Let's go to our website, shirtsandskinsinc.com, and uh, you can find us there, or just go to our Instagram. Yep, Shirts and Skins is the Instagram. Well, we appreciate everybody for listening, and please stay tuned for these interviews. We're going to keep hitting you with various business owners, people who have done something you're trying to do, and can maybe shed some insight. So thanks for listening, and have a great day. What up, y'all? This is Nick again. Before you take off, I want to ask a few favors. First, if you're listening this long, I'm going to assume that you're enjoying the show. Consider joining us on Patreon for as little as five bucks a month. It's a big help to keep this podcast going. We drop exclusive episodes every week on our Patreon page. Second, consider leaving us an honest review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate the feedback, and it also helps us grow the community that tunes in for the podcast. Last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. It goes a long way and can really make a difference in someone's day. Once again, we appreciate you all for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Peace. Hey, hey, Nick here again. Before you take off, I want to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. Be sure to hop into our Discord to answer this episode's The Last Shot question and get to know our community of sneaker enthusiasts. If you'd like more insights on the trending topics in the sneaker world, I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com newsletter. And last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. You never know how far a simple compliment can take you, and we all know how good it feels to be on the receiving end of some appreciation. Thank you for all the support, and we will catch you on the next episode. Peace.